All right, great camp. Great week at camp. Thanks for all of you who volunteered and uh, for all of you who participated. Outstanding week. Lots of fun, as you can tell. Let's pray together as we open up the scriptures and hear from God. Okay. Father, be kind to us. Give us grace to hear what it is you have said and are about to say to us. Give us ears attuned to you, not to any man, that we might honor you and delight in you and obey you with all our hearts. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. What's going to happen today in about 10 hours, and they're predicting it pretty much the same time tomorrow. I think you could actually set your clock by. It's going to happen at 8.33 p.m., and uh, it's the sunset. Happens pretty much every day. Happened yesterday. Happened the day before. And most of you missed it. You didn't even notice it. It might even have been a bother to you if you did notice it. You had to put on sunglasses or you had to pull the blinds or stop the yard work because it got too dark for you to keep going. It was just another sunset. But did, did you ever wonder about what goes into a sunset? You know, the earth is orbiting at 66,000 miles an hour. It's spinning on its axis at over 1,000 miles an hour. Um, there's some axial tilt. The moon's rotating at 2,300 miles per hour. And then the light comes in. It's white light. But there's all kinds of scattering that goes on. Rayleigh scattering and my scattering, which was discovered, by the way, by Gustav Adolf Fyodor Wilhelm Ludwig Mai. And it has equations like that. It's complicated. And the blues and the violets and the greens are filtered out. And the yellows and the orange remain. And there you have it. Sunset happens every day of your life. It's a wondrous thing. But maybe that's why we miss it. Because it happens every day. There it is. Sunset. Or maybe we're just too busy. We don't even notice it. It rarely awes us. It rarely captivates us as it should because the sunset is designed to help us think about and consider the scope and span of the sovereignty and goodness of God. Isaiah, as God speaks through him in chapter 45, says, I am the Lord. There's no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. When we look at sunsets, they are intended to put us in awe of their maker, whose sovereignty and love extends to the horizons. Um, they are, as N.T. Wright said, they are signposts pointing us to God. But when we miss the signposts, a lot of days we end up missing God. You know, there are amazing things that happen around us every day as expressions of the kindness and wonder of God all around us, and we miss them. Most times we miss them. Like right now, for instance. 
what's going on right here, right now, as the church gathers, we miss the wonder of it most times. The kindness of God shown to his people in the gathering of the church. And so it becomes less for us than what it really is. It's just another meeting. It's just another thing on our calendar. We say, uh, let's see, I've got the PTA, I've got the business development group, I've got soccer practice, and oh yeah, I almost forgot, I've got church. It's just another piece of calendar clutter. Um, it can even become burdensome and the kind of thing that we try to avoid. There was a seven-year-old boy in Plain City, Utah. Early on a Sunday morning, he jumped in his parents' car, pulled out the driveway, and took off down the road, seven years old. Not long after, local police start receiving complaints about an erratic driver in a white Dodge Intrepid. And what they found out what the boy was doing was he would scoot way down so he could reach the gas pedal, and then he would scoot way up so he could see where he was going. And he'd scoot way down to hit the gas pedal. And so the police pull him behind him, but he won't stop. And he leads him on this low-speed chase around town until finally he pulls back into his garage, into his driveway, his own driveway, made it back, He runs into the garage and the police finally get him and they interrogate him and they find out why he was doing this. He says early on a Sunday morning, it was just too hot to go to church. (laughs) You know, sometimes that's what church descends to for us, a thing to be avoided or tolerated or attended. And it's intended to be so, so much more than that when the church gathers. Now, when you become a part of this church, we have a membership covenant that's, I don't know, eight or ten points. One of those points says this. It says, I continue to be nurtured and fed through the corporate gatherings of the church. Participation in the worship services remain a strong priority in my life. The question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, why bother with gathering? What's so significant about what's happening in this room right now this morning? And of course, one simple basic reason is we're supposed to do it. It's what God asks of us. You know, that verse that's cited in our membership covenant says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So God expects it of his people that we would gather. And from the beginning, this is what the people of God have always done. Um, You look in the Psalms and there's a description. uh, Often it goes like this. I proclaim righteousness in the great assembly, the gathering of the people of God. I do not seal my lips as you know, O Lord. I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and salvation. I do not conceal your love and truth from the great assembly. So in the Old Testament, there were these great assemblies of God people. In the New Testament, as soon as, as, soon as believers begin to gather as the church, they gathered together, like all the time. In Acts 2, it says all the believers were together, had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to everyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Um, The church, the people of God, it's what we do. We gather. And 
what all of this, what I'm pointing to with all of this is, um, this is not something that's up for grabs for us. This is not an option. Anything else to do on Sunday? So I go, hear what the pastor has to say today. Listen to the band. It's not optional for us. The question today is not, should we gather? The question is, why? We want to try to recover the wonder of gathering today. Um, And when I talk about gathering today, I'm going to talk mostly about our all-together gatherings, which is Sunday mornings during this time. Uh, We have a monthly corporate prayer gathering when we all gather in the evening for extended prayer together. And we gather for the celebration of baptism out at the lake. Those are our three primary gatherings all together as a church family. Why do we bother with those? Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? I'd say we gather on Sunday mornings principally to put the universe back in order because it's gotten all disordered all week. Not this universe cosmologically, but the universe in here the way I think about, the way I see things. Um, During the week, the center of the universe tends to shift for us from God to me. The world begins to revolve around me. And when we gather on Sunday mornings, we recalibrate around that. Nancy Cheatham writes about her sister who got a new car with all the tech options. And she's driving her brand new car in the rain. She goes to turn the wipers on and she hits the wrong knob and the car says, um, drive car in 360 degrees. She has no idea what the car intends for her to do. So she gets home. She gets out the manual. She starts reading. And what, what turns out what had happened was she didn't hit the wiper button. She hit the internal compass on the car, the reset button. And the compass of the car, car got uncalibrated. And so what it was telling her to do is drive the car in a 360-degree circle, stop and point it north, recalibrate the compass. This is what we do on Sundays. We recalibrate our internal compasses that have been reset as a result of a disordered life all week long for a lot of us. One of the ways that we do that is together when we gather, it is a declaration of the greatness of God. Great gatherings of people, numerically, are one of the ways that we honor those who are greater than ourselves. This is a transcultural thing. Um, One of the largest gatherings of people ever in peacetime was uh, back in 1970, the the funeral of Egyptian President um, Nasser. Five million people gathered for his funeral, declaring his greatness by their presence. A little more recent, in 2004, three million people showed up in Boston to celebrate the ending of the curse of the Bambino as the Boston Red Sox won the World Series, declaring the greatness of the Red Sox. Three million people by the present. 1997, at that time, the largest gathering of women ever in the world happened in India as uh, they gathered at the Atukal Temple in one of their cities, bringing cooking pots And there they prepared food as an offering to a goddess as an act of worship. 1.5 million people declaring, just by their presence, the greatness of this goddess, the worth of the goddess of their worship. Our God is most worthy of great gatherings in his honor. So every week, 
in our land, just in our country, 118 million people gather for the express purpose of declaring the worth of God above all others. Who knows how many more millions around the world gather to declare and worship the great sovereign creator and sustainer of all that is, the one triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You sense this imagery of how great throngs ascribe greatness to the one they're gathered for in the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, it says, I looked, I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times, 10,000. They encircled the throne of God and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb, that's Christ who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The greatness of our Savior, Jesus the Christ, merits a great, full gathering of his church to worship and declare his glory. So when we get together here on a typical Sunday at North Wake, uh, there are almost in the two services and all the other compartments around our, our campus, there are almost a thousand people here on a Sunday, if you count kids. If you don't count kids, there's about 12 of us. But um, if you count everybody, it's not far off of a thousand people. And we are saying by our weekly gathered observance here on the Lord's Day that God is worthy, Christ is worthy of a great gathering in His name. And so here, today, when we get together, we're recalibrating. We're restoring rightful order to the universe. The dethroning of me, the enthroning of God again in our hearts and minds as supreme and great. We are agreeing with um, Pastor Rick Warren, who started his best-selling book, The Purpose Driven Church, with the sentence, it's not about you. Really, it's not It's about the one who created the universe by his great power. It's about the one who by his great love has redeemed us through the work of Christ on the cross, who has bought us when we were like slaves and now adopted us as sons and daughters of God. We are saying what Isaiah said in chapter 46. He says, remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. He's talking to us. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So we are reestablishing the supremacy and great worth of God in our minds when we gather this day in this place. And not only by the number of us who are gathered, um, millions and millions of us gathered to honor God is great, but also by an act of sacrifice. Sacrifice, or we might call it offering, has always been a part of the worship of the one true God. It always has, from the beginning. And the offering is always made by the worshiper to one who is more worthy, from the lesser to the greater. And so... We take a thing, we just did it during the video, called an offering, where we give our resources 
And it's not just to keep the lights on and the AC running, helpful as though that is. It is an act of worship whereby we declare with our resources that there is one more worthy of these resources than me. There is one greater who deserves these resources more than I do. And so we reorder the universe whenever we take the offering. More than that, though, there's a reordering that happens for us as American Christians when we make an offering not just of resources, but of our most precious commodity as busy Americans. We offer every Sunday morning our time. We stop doing all that we are doing. We say no to soccer games, no to tea times, no to work, no to sleeping in, no to coffee shops, no to the Sunday paper, no to the internet, no to anything that would compete with this time. And we say, God is greater than all of these. He is more worthy than all of these. He is supreme. He is the most precious um, one amongst us, worthy of our love. And we say that with our most precious commodity, our time. Every week we say, this time I will not compromise. This time I will dedicate with the people of God for God's glory in our gathered act of worship. When we do this, we are saying this to our children in an extraordinary way. And dads, on Father's Day, I want you to hear this statistic that came from some Swiss uh, researchers in the mid-90s. It's absolutely stunning, um, and I think it probably spills happily over into our culture. If a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife is in that activity, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. One in 50. If a father does go regularly, no matter what the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers at some level. Between two-thirds and three-quarters. Dads, your example matters. Someone is watching you. You are, in a sense, preparing the next generation to worship God, which he is worthy of, by your own example, by setting the direction of your children, simply by your faithfulness in this hour, not compromising in your commitment to worship God as part of the church gathered. However, many times... Uh, the examples of dads is quite contrary to that in their commitments. Consider, for example, one Sunday morning, two men are out in the boat fishing. After several hours on the lake without catching a single fish, one of the men says to his friend, you know, we probably should have just stayed home and gone to church. And the other man says, well, I could have stayed home, but I couldn't have gone to church. Why is that? His friend asks him, he says, oh, my wife is sick. Just think about that for a minute. All right, he could go fishing when his wife was sick, but he couldn't go to church. Hence the, you'll get it later. Your wife will explain it to you on the way home. When we gather, we are saying, as one people, in the words of Revelation, worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Every time we gather, we are saying this with our words in song, but also by our presence and by the offering, the sacrifice of time to our great God. We are reestablishing in our hearts and minds that God is worthy, wholly worthy of our worship. And we are the only ones who can do this. Only those who know God worship God. It is on us to honor him in this way. If not us, there is no one else. This is our calling, together to say with Paul and the church throughout the ages who have said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So, we're writing things in the universe, at least our perception of it, by exalting God as worthy. But the flip side of that is not only are we exalting God today, we are humbling ourselves before Him. We are, as we gather to worship as one church, humbling ourselves in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The very act of worship the meaning of one of the key terms that's used to describe it is the act of bowing down low. Um, Here's an example from Exodus. Aaron tells the people everything the Lord had said to Moses. He performs some miraculous signs to support that, and the people believe. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Worshiped is a humbling of ourselves before a mighty and gracious God. And this is so good for us. We need this because all all week long we've been told things like pride is a virtue and the exaltation of me is perfectly appropriate and natural. There's a book um, out called The Narcissism Epidemic by a couple of psychologists. This is the way they start their book. We didn't have to look very hard to find it. Narcissism. It was everywhere. Then they say, on a reality TV show, of course, a girl planning her 16th birthday party wants a major road blocked off so a marching band can precede her grand entrance on a red carpet to a 16th birthday party. I'm not making this up. A book called My Beautiful Mommy explains plastic surgery to, a young, to young children whose mothers are going under the knife for the trendy mommy makeover. It is now possible to hire fake paparazzi to follow you around and take your pictures so you will look important. People buy expensive homes with loans far beyond their ability to pay, or at least they did until the mortgage market collapsed as a result. Babies wear bibs embroidered with supermodel or chick magnet on their bibs. 
they suck on bling pacifiers while their parents read modernized nursery rhymes from This Little Piggy Went to Prada. I am not making this up. In 2006, one out of four college students agreed with the majority of the items on a standard measure of narcissistic traits. More closer to home here, former presidential candidate John Edwards explained his extramarital affair this way. He says, in the course of several campaigns, I started to believe that I was special and became increasingly egocentric and narcissistic. This is why we need this gathering. Just, just so we can chant together, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about a great king and a loving father who spoke the world into existence and in love sent his son to buy us from slavery so we could be his adopted sons and daughters. We agree with Nehemiah and the Levites, a whole bunch of them, who said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. So when the church gathers, by the proclamation of the word, in song and speech, God is restored to his unique place above all others. And like Isaiah, we say, uh, as he speaks for God, he says, turn to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But the Lord In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel will be found righteous and will exult. See, this is why we so desperately need together. We have been duped all week long that it's all about me. And here we have the opportunity to bow low and become small before God. President Theodore Roosevelt was famous for this. He was... um, he was evidently a great lover of the outdoors, and he used to, in the time before um, city lights obscured the skyline in, out behind the White House, he would take diplomatic guests, walk out behind the White House, and just let them see the stars. And they would just stand there quietly and watch. Nothing would be said. And after a while, President Roosevelt would say, Gentlemen, I believe we are small enough now. Let's go to bed. This gathering is one way we recover our smallness before the creator of the universe and the lover of our souls by gathering here. As Peter said it very simply, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. Creation can do that, but the church gathered can do that supremely each and every Sunday. As God is lifted up, We bow down low and are put in our rightful place on our faces, bowed down before him. 
Now, there are so many other good things that come to us through this gathering. I'm just going to skip the rock across the pond and kind of touch on a few of them this morning. Um, One of the casualties of sin um, unaddressed in our lives is that we become spiritually dense. We just don't see things rightly. Um, Sin has a way of making us insensitive to the things of God. You pick that up from Romans chapter 1. We're writing about the effect of sin on our world. He says, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Sin makes us dull spiritually. Um, Busyness has a way of, of making God inaudible to us. We're just too busy to slow down and listen. That obstacles to growth survey I've cited before says 62% of American Christians say that it is often or always true that the busyness of life gets in the way of my relationship with God. 62% of us say that's often or always true. When we gather, the proclamation of the Word of God has the potential to awake us from our sin-induced slumber because it calls us to repent Honestly, you can go all week and not have anybody call you to repent, especially if you're single. You can go all week and not have anybody call you to repent. If you come here, then you, as as a kind invitation from God, are called to repent of your sins. It is a rescue. It is a protection for you. In Romans 2, Paul says, do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that leads you towards repentance? Because God doesn't just lead us to repentance. He leads us to repentance and offers us hope and grace. Later in Romans, he'll say, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, what we're doing right now, we might have hope. The promises of God, the accounts of his faithfulness and love for his people, they bring to us hope when we are discouraged. When we gather here in this room, cold, indifferent hearts can be revived. And one of the great tools that God has given us for that is music that our our worship team leads us so extraordinarily in. Music as a connecting point in worship to God. But music is a powerful tool. I want to read you a quote. Listen carefully to it, and then I'll tell you who it's by. He writes, If I had my life to live over again, I would have made it a rule to read some poetry and listen to some music at least once a week. For perhaps the part of my mind now atrophied would thus have been kept active through use. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness. It may possibly be injurious to the intellect and more probably to the moral character by enfeebling the emotional part of our nature. This was written, I believe, late in his life when he denied his faith by Charles Darwin. So music, God uses when we gather together here live in the throng, the great assembly. God uses that 
to awaken us from our slumber and, and to thaw out cold hearts. The other thing he uses when we're gathered together are what I call catalytic worshipers. They've set in front of you. If you put their hands in their pockets, they would blow their pockets right out when worship came. Their hands are lifted. They are excited. They're exuberant. They are enthusiastic. Um, Daniel Creswell would spontaneously combust if it was not for the grace of God when he gets the opportunity to lead us in worship. He is a passionate, exuberant, catalytic worshiper of God. And as an introvert, those examples help me. Out of the corner of my eye, I see somebody worshiping passionately and it makes me go the next step in unrestrained adoration and worship for God. Um, Passionate worshipers do that. Suffering worshipers. I watch people in our church who are suffering deeply, a great betrayal, cancer, and they stand here in our midst, hands raised, tears flowing down their cheeks, and they worship God. And I'm inspired to join them in that. Sometimes just being in the midst of the gathered church at worship will strengthen your faith. There's a book um, called In Darkness is My Only Companion. It's a Christian response to mental illness, and it's by Catherine Green McWright. She had 10 years of extreme depression and bipolar disorder. And this is an excerpt from her writing. It's really profound. She says, this is why it is so important to worship in community, to ask your brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for you. Sometimes you literally cannot make it on your own, and you need to borrow from the faith of those around you. Sometimes, she says, I cannot even recite the creed unless I am doing it in the context of worship, along with all the body of Christ. When reciting the creed, I borrow from the recitation of others. Companionship, she says, in the Lord Jesus is powerful. So your presence matters to those who are struggling here. When we gather, we're forced to slow down enough to remember. We've been so busy all week that we've forgotten the great loving sacrifice of Christ for us. And here, we're forced to slow down and remember. We sit under the preaching of the word together. It's a non-negotiable here. You're confronted by the word here in an extraordinary way. If you're listening to somebody on the radio and they tick you off, you turn them off. If you're reading a book and it bothers you, you put it down. Here, you're held captive. We lock the doors during the sermon. Not really, the fire marshal frowns on that, but, but there's a sense in which you will hear things here that you will not seek out to hear anywhere else than the church gathered under the proclamation of the word. And we do that together as one people. We lift our voices and are united in praise around one set of, of glorious lyrics, like that opening song we sang about the great I am. Um, We are united together in prayer as we intercede for people all around the globe from our family and those they are trying to reach. Um, We are made one when we gather. All of this and so much more is offered to us by our kind God in the mandate that we gather. 
Order is restored to the universe of our hearts. God is enthroned once again. We are removed from the center and called to humbly submit to his lordship. Let me close with just a word about the two other special gatherings, and I I know I'm holding you late, um, but I, I want you to just think about these with me. When the church gathers for prayer, extraordinary things happen. It's all over the pages of Scripture. One example is in Acts 12. Peter's in prison, and, and they call out particularly, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And then this miraculous deliverance happens. Um, an angel appears, wakes him up, the chains fall, fell off, and he's free. But they underscore for us that that's because the church was praying. In, in 1 John 5, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. You know, we, as a church family, are deeply committed to loving each other, and we have a sister who has fallen into one of these kinds of sins. Our church gathered last month to pray for her as a church family with the hope that God would free her from the snare that has been set for her. Um, I hope you were there. I hope you didn't compromise that time for a ball game or a TV show or or something like that. Because when the church gathers for prayer, God is extraordinarily kind to us. Honestly, I, I look forward to sometime one of those monthly gatherings when every seat's filled in this room. It takes two two settings for us to fill it on Sunday morning. If we could fill this room with people interceding, um, I can't imagine what God, how his kindness might be displayed. The other is baptism. Every so often we go out to the lake and we baptize believers who are desiring to testify to their faith in Christ and follow him in baptism. It's one of the great sacred acts of worship of the church, not just of that individual, but of the church It is an act so powerful that when governments oppose the gospel, they do it at the point of baptism. That's that's what they declare illegal. That's the point at which they persecute the church. Don't baptize. Don't let them publicly baptize because they know it's so powerful for the church. And it's the best party we have. Don't miss it. It's grand. It's the best celebration we have. So I hope you get it this morning. Do you get it? Do you see better what we're really about here? Why we need this time? Why it's not some optional, uh, flexible, if I don't have anything else to do, if there's nothing good on, I'll go kind of thing. That to gather as the church, the body, and the bride of Christ is to restore order to our universe that we so desperately need and that God so fully deserves. But you need to understand that you won't get gathered, the church gathered, corporate worship, its significance will escape you if you don't embrace the love of God poured out for you in the death and the resurrection of his son. That's how you enter the church. That's, that faith in Christ is what brings you into the church, God's people. And, and that's the necessary consideration for you this morning. Let's, uh, I'm going to invite you, let's stand We're going to close with that song that we started things with. Declare the greatness of our God together, and then I'll dismiss us after that.